Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello listeners, welcome to the Tax Wrap Podcast, episode... 174. I'm Steve Burnham, your host, and uh, look, this time I thought I'd share with you something that the Tax Commissioner released recently, uh, in the midst of tax time. Uh, he's released the five most common mistakes uh, in tax returns, and also the personalities most likely to have tax time troubles, which is interesting. Well, I think it's interesting. Uh, now, the top five mistakes include taxpayers who are leaving out some of their income, maybe forgetting a, a temp job or money earned from... Um, you know, they might have drive an Uber car on weekends or whatever. Uh, next one, claiming deductions for personal expenses, such as home-to-work travel, just ordinary clothes or personal phone calls. Uh, next one, forgetting to keep receipts or records of all their expenses. I think a lot of people assume that, uh, you know, you've got a record on your phone or your computer at home and they don't, uh, then they lose that record. A lot of things can happen there. Another one, claiming for something they never paid for, often because they think someone... Everyone is entitled to a, quote, standard deduction. And the last one that the Commissioner um, highlights as being a common mistake is claiming personal expenses for rental properties, either claiming deductions for times when they are using the property themselves or claiming interest on loans used to buy personal assets like a a car or a boat. Um, Now, the Tax Commissioner states that there are three golden rules for work-related claims. You must have spent the money yourself and not have been reimbursed. It must be directly related to earning your income, and you must have a record to prove it. So those three things, if you can cover those, he says you should be safe. So I mentioned that the um, task commissioner uh, said there were personalities that are most uh, common to find making these sort of mistakes. So he's actually given five like case studies of people, uh, which is interesting and funny. (laughs) First one, Emily, the early lodger. Now, Emily likes to be on top of things and is pretty keen to get her return as soon as possible. So she lodges a tax return in early July. Good on Emily. But unfortunately for Emily, she's much more likely to forget to declare income from a, a two-week temp job late last year by waiting until pre-fill is available in August. Usually they say, yeah, by the end of August, you're safe. Uh, the ATO will automatically input most information from employers, financial institutions and, and government agencies. So that's, I think, good to know and good to remind your clients about. Fiona the freeloader. Now, Fiona likes to look her best, spends a lot of money on the latest fashions and makeup to wear to work. Um, when it comes to tax time, Fiona decides to claim a deduction for the cost of her clothes and makeup as a work-related expense to recoup some of those costs. Um, the, the ATO, of course, looks into Fiona's claims and they're denied as they're a private expense and she has to pay back the money plus a penalty. Poor old Fiona. Next, we've got disorganised David. David's a plumber with a bunch of deductions he can claim at tax time. Sadly for Dave, his tax time experience is a lot harder than it needs to be because he has forgotten to keep records of his expenses, meaning he can't claim deductions he's otherwise entitled to. Um, On the other side of that coin, we've got Terry the tax cheat. He actually uh, goes out of his way to uh, do the wrong thing. Um, He's not entirely honest with the, the tax return and claims a number of deductions that he's not entitled to. Despite working a corporate job in an office, 
uh, where he doesn't wear a uniform, he put in a $150 deduction for clothing and laundry. Uh, and as he heard that anyone can claim $150 without receipts. Well, he also claimed 5,000 kilometres on car expenses for work despite not undertaking any work-related travel. Last one, Rob the Rental Water. <laughs> He's got a holiday home down the coast and he claims it's for rent but he doesn't make any real effort to rent it out and only makes it available for a few months in the winter when he knows not many people will be inter interested in it. Uh, he also charges rent at a rate significantly over market rates although he lets his family and friends stay at mates' rates. So Rob declares uh, $5,000 in income on the property but claims $69,000 in deductions, which is the total of all the expenses on the property for the full year. As Rob's property is not genuinely available for rent for the whole year, he isn't entitled to claim all his deductions for the whole year either. His claims are highly likely to raise a red flag for the ATO to investigate. So they're the... <coughs> most common mistakes and the kind of personalities that the, uh, the uh, tax commissioner reckons are the, going to make use of those, are going to make those mistakes. Um, now there's another development, um, what I'm doing here is going over a few of the uh, recent developments in the tax field. Uh, this one surprised me that um, there's been an exposure draft released, uh, Treasury Laws Amendment 2018 measures number five bill and it's titled online hotel bookings. Now what this draft uh, exposure is covering is GST on offshore hotel bookings. The draft legislation wants to extend GST by ensuring that offshore sellers of hotel accommodation in Australia calculate their GST turnover in the same way as local sellers and it's proposed to apply from July 1, 2019. Currently unlike uh, GST registered businesses in Australia, Offshore sellers of Australian hotel accommodation are exempt from including sales of hotel accommodation in their GST turnover. This means they are not often not required to register for and charge GST on their markup over the wholesale price of the accommodation. Um, both Australian and foreign consumers are increasingly booking hotel Australian hotel rooms through online services based offshore. Uh, and this means that they can take advantage of an exemption designed for offshore tour operators. So removing the exemption will level the playing field by ensuring the same tax treatment for Australian hotel accommodation whether booked through a domestic or offshore company. So that's one to keep an eye on. It's uh, just exposure so far, but uh, if you have any clients involved with that sort of thing, it's uh, good to warn them about it and keep an eye on that legislation. All part of the job. Oh, speaking of part of the job, I'll just mention the, uh, the legislation that's uh, also going through Treasury Laws Amendment 2018 Measures Number 1. Um, this aims to update the list of approved stock exchanges to remove references to stock exchanges that no longer exist and add references to stock exchanges produced from mergers or the renaming of stock exchanges that were previously listed. Okay, number one. Number two, allow disclosure of taxpayer information to officers of the Black Economy Standing Task Force and the Illicit Tobacco Task Force. So that's a bit of a change. But here's the clincher. The regulations are going to uh, increase the application fees for tax agents, BAS agents and tax financial advisors, quote, to better reflect the costs of the tax, tax practitioners board. Now, these increases are around 35% and as a result, tax agent registration will be $675. A BAS agent registration will be $135 and a tax financial advisor reg registration will be $540. And these fees will increase on each 
1st of July each year in line with the CPI. So that's an increase in our, our tax agent fees, which uh, I suppose was inevitable. They haven't gone up for a while, but, uh, but still it's something to keep in mind. Now, I just wanted to the cars, of course, vehicle expenses are always something that uh, clients are, are coming up with, and um, there has been released a practical compliance guideline, PCG 2018-3, uh, talking about the exempt car benefits and exempt residual benefits and the compliance approach to determining private use of vehicles. So generally, a fringe benefit arises where an employer makes a vehicle they hold available for private use of its employee. But the private use of a motor vehicle is ex- exempt from FBT if all of the following conditions are satisfied. So you've got to keep this in mind. The conditions are that the vehicle is an eligible vehicle, including a panel van, ute or other commercial vehicle that is one, you know, not, not designed principally to carry passengers, and the employee's private use of such a vehicle is limited to travel between home and work, travel that is incidental to travel in the course of duties of employment, and non-work-related use that is minor, infrequent and irregular. The Tax Commissioner has released this PCG 2018-3 to explain when he will not apply compliance resources, so he won't look at it too closely, to determine if private use of the vehicle was minor, infrequent and irregular as required. Now the Commissioner states that this guidance applies if you provide an eligible vehicle for a current employee, if the vehicle is provided to the employee for business use to perform their work duties, if the vehicle had a GST inclusive value less than the luxury car tax threshold at the time the vehicle was acquired, uh, that the vehicle is not provided as part of a salary packaging arrangement um, and the employee cannot elect to receive additional remuneration in lieu of using the vehicle, uh, that the employer has a policy in place that limits private use of the vehicle and obtains assurance from the employee that the use is limited to use as outlined, uh, that the employee uses a vehicle to travel between their home and their place of work and any diversion adds no more than two kilometres to the ordinary length of that trip and for journeys undertaken for a wholly private purpose other than travel between home and place of work, the employee does not use the vehicle to travel more than a thousand kilometres in total and a return journey that exceeds 200 kilometres. Now the Commissioner states that while employers do not need to rely on the guideline to claim exemption from FBT for these vehicles, if the employer meets the following conditions, they do not need to keep records about the employee's use of the vehicle that demonstrate that the private use of the vehicle is minor, infrequent and regular, and the Commissioner will not devote compliance resources to review that you can access the car-related exemptions for that employee. So, if the employee's use cannot meet the above conditions, including no salary packaging or, or in lieu of payment, no diversions above two kilometres, less than a thousand kilometres private use a year, and less than 200 kilometres private use in any single trip, then they will need to have records and prove the private use is minor, infrequent and irregular. I've got an example which might spell this out a bit better. So, an employer provides an employee with a new panel van designed to carry a load of less than one tonne. The van is provided to the employee to enable the employee to carry bulky equipment to and from their work site. Now, the van is not provided as part of a salary packaging arrangement and was acquired for a value below the applicable luxury car tax threshold. So the van is an eligible vehicle, put my teeth in. Um, The van is garaged at the employee's home and the employee uses the van to travel between their home and their place of employment. Uh, the employer has a strict policy in place about limiting private use of the vehicle. Okay, all good so far. The employee usually stops at the newsagent to pick up a paper on their way to work, and the diversion adds no more than two kilometres to the total trip from home to work. On ten occasions during the FBT year, the employee also transported their niece to school in the van during the employee's journey from home to work. The journeys to home from home to work 
generally did not exceed 20 kilometres. At the end of the 2019 FBT year, the employer receives an email from the employee. The email outlines that multiple journeys were undertaken in the FBT year for a wholly private purpose and these journeys did not exceed 1,000 kilometres in total. The employee also outlines in the email that in driving to and from work, no diversions were undertaken that exceeded two kilometres. The employer is satisfied, therefore, that the employee has adhered to their policy about limited private use. Uh, now, the employer is able to rely on this guideline as a, para as a requirements in paragraph six of the guideline are met. Got another little example here to, uh, for a little uh, tweak to that situation. If you assume the same facts as we've just been through, however, during the football season, the employee attends weekly football training after work. The diversion adds more than two kilometres to the total journey from work to home. The employee's travel from work to football training is not considered to be a diversion as a primary purpose of the journey was for the employee to travel to football training, not to travel from work to home. Additionally, the travel to attend this weekly football training and the travel to transport their niece exceeds 1,000 kilometres. Therefore, the employee cannot provide assurance that the requirements in paragraph 6 of the guideline are met and the employer will not be able to rely on the guideline. So the employer will need to rely on the relevant provisions of the FBT law to determine if they can access the car-related exemptions. Now this new PCG will apply to car and residual benefits provided in the 2019 and later FBT years. Um, got another little thing here. I'm, I'm, I'm a little interested in Bitcoin. Not that I have any Bitcoin, but it's, a, it's an interesting uh, <coughs> development in the um, landscape that the ATO has to stay on top of, of course. Uh, cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin. There's, there's quite a lot of cryptocurrencies out there. Uh, but Lester, if I say Bitcoin, I mean any cryptocurrency, not specifically that one. Um, the Tax Commissioner has um, recently provided guidance on the tax treatment of transactions that involve cryptocurrency. He states that a CGT event occurs when a taxpayer disposes of cryptocurrency. Now, this could occur when they sell or gift cryptocurrency, when they trade or exchange cryptocurrency, when they convert cryptocurrency to, to fiat currency like Australian dollars, or when they use cryptocurrency to obtain goods and services. So if a taxpayer disposes of one cryptocurrency and acquire, to acquire another cryptocurrency, they dispose of one CGT asset and acquire another CGT asset, therefore a CGT event arises. If the Bitcoin you receive cannot be valued, the capital proceeds from the disposal are worked out by using the market value of the Bitcoin disposed of at the time of the transaction. Now, if the disposal is part of a business, the profits will be assessable as ordinary income and not as a capital gain. <clears throat> However, if the cryptocurrency was acquired as an investment, the taxpayer may have to pay tax on any capital gain made on disposal, like any other investment. Uh, if the taxpayer holds cryptocurrency as an, as, as an investment for 12 months or more, they may be entitled to the ordinary CGT discount when you hold an asset for more than 12 months. Now, there's a personal use asset exemption where Bitcoin will only be a personal use asset if it is kept or used mainly to purchase items for personal use or consumption. Remember that capital gains you make from personal use assets acquired for less than $10,000 are disregarded for CGT purposes. However, all capital losses you make on personal use assets are disregarded. Now, Bitcoin is only capable of being acquired, held and transacted with. Most of the period of holding and the nature of the subsequent transaction will be relevant to whether your cryptocurrency is a personal use asset. The, the relevant time for determining whether or not an asset is a personal use asset is the time of its disposal. Now, during a period of ownership, the way that Bitcoin is kept or used may change. For example, um, Bitcoin may originally be acquired for personal use and enjoyment, but ultimately be kept or used as an investment to make a profit on ultimate disposal or as part of carrying on a business. 
Now, the longer the period of time that a Bitcoin, the Bitcoin is held, the less likely it is that it will be a personal use asset. Um, Bitcoin is not a personal use asset if it is acquired, kept or used as an investment in a profit-making scheme or in the course of carrying on a business. Um, if you have to exchange a cryptocurrency you own to Australian dollars or to a different cryptocurrency to purchase or acquire the items for personal use or consumption, then this strongly indicates to the commissioner that the cryptocurrency you own was acquired, held and used for a purpose other than personal use or enjoyment. Got a couple of examples that might um, illustrate this. Say Michael some, wants to attend a concert and the concert provider offers discounted ticket prices for payments made in cryptocurrency. Michael pays $270 to acquire cryptocurrency and uses that Bitcoin to pay for the tickets on the same day. Having regard to the circumstances in which Michael acquired and used the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin is a personal use asset. Sort of got a lot to do with, uh, with tax, the application of tax law intention has a big part to play, doesn't it, in these um, sorts of uh, situations. Got another situation where Peter has been regularly keeping cryptocurrency for over six months with the intention of selling at a favourable exchange rate. And he's decided to buy some goods and services directly with some of his uh, cryptocurrency. Because Peter used the cryptocurrency as an investment, the cryptocurrency is not a personal use asset. Now, in these times when uh, we're always being warned about scams and hacking and all sorts of things, uh, that's always been a bit of a concern with Bitcoin. Uh, about loss or theft of Bitcoin, the Commissioner states that a, a taxpayer may be able to claim a capital loss if they lose their Bitcoin private key or their Bitcoin is stolen. Now, generally, where, where an item can be replaced, it is not lost. A lost private key cannot be replaced. Therefore, to claim a capital loss, you will need to be able to provide the following kinds of evidence that you acquired and lost the private key, the wallet address that the private key relates to, the cost you incurred to acquire the lost or stolen Bitcoin, the amount of Bitcoin in the wallet at the time of loss of private key, that the wallet was controlled by yourself, that you are in possession of the hardware which stores the wallet, and transactions to the wallet from digital currency exchange for which you hold a verified account or is linked to your identity. Uh, another factor to keep in mind is uh, when Bitcoin splits, it's um, sharing market investors will be familiar with the share splits. Well, a Bitcoin split is very similar. Um, if a taxpayer holds cryptocurrency as an investment and receives a new cryptocurrency as a result of what they call a chain split. Uh, they do not derive ordinary income or make a capital gain at that time as a result of receiving the new cryptocurrency. An example to illustrate, uh, Alex held 10 bitcoins on the 1st of August 2017 as an investment when Bitcoin Cash split from Bitcoin. Uh, this did actually happen. Uh, immediately after the chain split, Alex held 10 bitcoin and 10 bitcoin cash. Alex does not derive ordinary income or make a capital gain as a result of the receipt. A little while later, a few months later, 25th of May, say, 2018, Alex sold the 10 Bitcoin Cash, the new ones, for $4,000 because the cost base of the Bitcoin Cash was zero because it was just you know, split. Alex makes a total capital gain of the $4,000 for the 2017-18 income year from the sale of the Bitcoin Cash. There's another point. A new cryptocurrency received as a result of a chain split in relation to cryptocurrency held in a business will be treated as trading stock where it is held for sale or exchange in the ordinary course of business. Some issues there that uh, have uh, occurred recently that uh, everyone should be at least be aware of or certainly be on top of. Um, that's it for, for me. I'd just like to finally give a shout out to Carl Jackson at Medic. Hello Carl. Please tune in again next time.